Welcome to the Practicing Clinicians Exchange podcast. This podcast series was developed from a live PCE conference focused on gastrointestinal and genitourinary cancers, including gastric cancer, colorectal cancer, hepatocellular carcinoma, bladder cancer, and prostate cancer. In each episode, you will hear the latest evidence and expert recommendations for the care of patients with a specified malignancy. In this podcast series, each of these topics will be discussed in two podcast episodes covering didactic presentation of the available evidence, relevant case discussions to illustrate clinical implementation strategies, and the audience Q&A session. Be sure to listen to the two podcast episodes for each topic in sequential order as they may include examination of continuing case studies with patients progressing through different stages of their care. To claim your credit, please visit pce.is forward slash GIGU. My name is Dr. Bridget O'Brien, and I am the director of the Family Nurse Practitioner Program at Rush University. I have also worked for 20 plus years at the Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center in Chicago as a gastrointestinal oncology nurse practitioner. And I'm so happy to have you all here today, as well as to welcome my fellow faculty members. We have the pleasure of having Dr. Singal with us, who is a professor of medicine at the Division of Digestive and Liver Diseases at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, as well as uh, Dr. Mark Yarshwin, who is an assistant director in the Division of Gastrointestinal Cancer at the John Hopkins University, Baltimore, Maryland. We're thrilled to have a multidisciplinary group today because we know the treatment of hepatocellular cancer really requires that. So the fact that we have hepatology and oncology represented is a wonderful thing. These are the learning objectives for today. We're going to summarize the current and emerging biomarkers and their impact on hepatocellular carcinoma, as well as treatment choices. We're going to identify the roles of novel and emerging agents in the treatment of advanced hepatocellular cancer, as well as use recommended strategies to recognize and manage AEs associated with novel treatments for HCC. We're going to have a general overview of HCC hopefully answer all those questions. We're going to discuss the current challenges in the management of HCC, as well as recommend our initial workup. We're going to talk about available and emerging therapies, efficacy, safety, and treatment selection, which will include lines of therapy and treatment recommendations, as well as evolving treatment strategies. We're going to talk about identification and management of adverse events. This I know what a lot of you care about. What are the immune-related adverse events and the adverse events uh, associated specifically with the drugs we use, uh, lenvatinib, bevacizumab, regorafenib, and uh, cabozatinib. So we're going to have Dr. Sinkal start us off with an overview of HCC. Thanks, Bridget, for getting us started um, on this exciting program. As Bridget mentioned, I'm going to start today's program with going over an overview of hepatocellular carcinoma including some basic epidemiology and some concepts that are quite important for us all to consider as we think through the evolving treatment landscape. Uh, Liver cancer in general is not one that we hear of often, but it's truly something that is um, of growing concern. So HCC or hepatocellular carcinoma, um, the most common type of primary liver cancer, is actually the third leading cause of cancer-related deaths from a global perspective. The highest burden of HCC resides in East Asia and in Africa, and it's driven by high rates of endemic hepatitis B in both of those areas. In the United States, as we'll talk about, you know, it has more of an intermediate incidence, 
and mortality rate, although those trends are actually going in a bad direction where we're seeing both increasing incidence and mortality here in the United States. One of the unique things about HCC is the vast majority of cases occur in the setting of chronic liver disease. So over 80 to 90% actually occur in the setting of cirrhosis. And here you can see a simple schematic of how one typically will progress to developing HCC. Most of us start life with a normal liver, and you can have insults with several of them listed on the left-hand bottom side of the slide. You can see that these can be viral in nature, whether hepatitis B or hepatitis C, or non-viral in etiology, such as alcohol abuse or non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. And this last one, this non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, is becoming more and more common because this is associated with obesity and diabetes. And so as those two conditions continue to become more and more common in the Eastern and Western world, we're seeing more and more NASH-related cirrhosis and NASH-related HCC. These conditions typically cause a condition of chronic hepatitis that can then continue to go on for several decades, 20 to 30 years, Patients can develop cirrhosis, and once somebody develops cirrhosis, they have an annual risk of developing HCC somewhere between 2 to 3%. So this is truly a high-risk state of developing HCC. Now, as I mentioned, here in the United States, we have currently more of an intermediate incidence and mortality rate, although the current projections say that if trends continue as they're um, currently ongoing, it's projected by the year 2035. HCC will be the third leading cause of cancer death here in the United States, surpassing many of the other common causes of cancer mortality that we think of, including colorectal and breast cancer. So clearly a time that we need to do better in terms of early detection and therapeutics. We know that from a liver cancer perspective, one of the most important things is to find this tumor early. Like many cancers, the prognosis for this cancer largely depends on the stage at time of diagnosis. And here you can see a simplified version of the staging algorithm for um, hepatocellular carcinoma and the treatment allocations that go along with that stage. And what you can see here from this slide is that if somebody is found at an early stage, we have curative therapies available, including surgical resection, liver transplantation, and local ablation. And here you can see median survivals of around five to 10 years. In contrast, if you're found at more advanced stages, whether intermediate or advanced, we simply have palliative therapies available, although exciting advances in those spaces, as Mark will talk about in the latter half of this talk. But here you see median survivals of somewhere between one to three years. So stark difference in contrast if somebody is found early and eligible for curative therapies versus later stages. Given this strong association between tumor stage curative therapy receipt, and overall survival, several professional society guidelines recommend HCC screening in all at-risk patients, notably those patients with cirrhosis from any etiology. So here you can see recommendations that are from the American Association for the Study of Liver Diseases. These same recommendations hold true for the NCCN as well as other professional societies who recommend, once again, HCC screening to be done in all at-risk patients, all patients with cirrhosis, and subsets of patients with chronic hepatitis B. This receives a strong recommendation from many of these professional societies. Now, when we take a look at the data supporting this recommendation, 
there have been several cohort studies that actually show a strong association between HCC screening and improved outcomes, including early tumor detection, curative treatment receipt, and once again, most notably, an improvement in overall survival. So you can see here from these cohort studies, we see a 36% reduction in mortality if somebody's undergoing HCC screening. So how do we perform screening? Typically, professional society guidelines recommend that screening is performed using a simple abdominal ultrasound, as well as a blood test called alpha-feta protein. So these two tests in combination should be performed every six months in at-risk patients. Once again, several cohort studies showing this strategy improves outcomes. Now, you can see that this is, once again, a unique cancer in many different ways. As I mentioned, is a cancer that develops in the setting of chronic liver disease, if not cirrhosis. And so any therapy that we consider for the HCC needs to not only consider the amount of tumor burden, but also the health of the underlying liver. And so one of the key concepts that we'd like everyone to take home here is adequately and efficiently treat HEC. You really need to not only understand the oncologic concepts, but also the, the hepatology concepts. And so, you know, we talk about multidisciplinary teams, and I agree that that's so essential to doing this. But it's interesting because I think all of us become hybrid physicians when you start treating HEC on a regular basis. And so, you know, I think Mark and I both consider ourselves hepatologists, oncologists, where, you know, we've become well-versed in each other's specialty, where, you know, I've learned many oncology concepts during my faculty positions. And I think Mark has become, you know, a, a pseudo-hepatologist um, during his faculty appointment as well. And so whenever you treat someone with HEC, one of the key things is to assess the health of the underlying liver. And as you pointed out, this is typically done using the child pew scoring system. The CHALPU scoring system is based on three lab variables, bilirubin, albumin, INR, as well as two clinical features, the presence of ascites or fluid retention in the abdomen and hepatic encephalopathy, which often manifests as difficulty concentrating or overt confusion related to an accumulation of toxins in the body in the setting of liver dysfunction. As you can see from the top upper right table, you get points for each of these five different factors, going from a score of one to three, when you add those up, you get an overall score of five to 15. And you can bucket people into three different groups, A, B, or C. Much like grade school, A is the best, C is the worst in terms of liver function. And so this is always important. And it's actually built into the staging system for HEC in terms of what is somebody's child Q class. The other thing that has become increasingly important is the presence of or, or absence of portal hypertension. So we've already talked about the, you know, surgical resection versus liver transplantation for patients with early stage disease, with surgical resection really being reserved for patients without portal hypertension, and liver transplantation best reserved for patients with portal hypertension or liver dysfunction. However, this is also an increasingly important concept in the setting of systemic therapy for HCC, where now one must do an operandoscopy before considering certain therapies, including atizolizumab and bevacizumab, to assess the presence of varices, which is a sign of portal hypertension. And so once again, this is a concept you'll hear later in the talk by Mark in terms of needing to do an operandoscopy and assess for the presence of varices. And this is important because those varices are prone to opening up and bleeding in patients with cirrhosis.
Now, as I mentioned, the Barcelona Clinic Liver Cancer Staging System is our typical staging system. And you can see here, the staging system is not only comprised of the tumor burden, i.e. how much cancer there is and if there's vascular invasion or metastatic spread, but also two other factors, liver function, once again, the ChildPU class here, ChildPU A, as you can see on the left-hand side, but you can see that ChildPU C, so if somebody has a very sick liver, independent of tumor burden, you go all the way to the right-hand side and you become terminal stage. The other factor is ECOG performance status, which once again is incorporated into the staging system, which then helps in terms of the treatment allocation. Now, you can see here the staging is then associated with overall treatment recommendations. I think this is nice. It's a starting point, although anyone who treats HEC knows um, life is much more difficult than simply following these arrows down to the recommended therapy. But this gives us a starting point for the recommended therapy for any single stage. It's important to note that each of these therapies is delivered by different providers. You have surgeons, you have interventional radiologists, medical oncologists, radiation oncologists. And so you have a lot of different people who are at the table. You also have radiology, pathology, you have advanced practice providers. So you have many people who are sitting at the table and discussing these cases on a daily basis. And so multidisciplinary care is an essential aspect to the management of HEC. There have been several studies that have shown that multidisciplinary care is not only a feel-good concept in HEC, but significantly improves outcomes, including curative treatment receipt and overall survival. And so many people regard this as being standard of care for anyone with HCC. So with that, I'm going to um, end my um, beginning section, I'm going to sort of try to highlight some key take-home points from this overview section. I think it's become clear that HEC is an increasing cause of cancer-related mortality here in the United States. Early detection is critical. This affords curative therapies, and we know that this is associated with improved survival in at-risk patients, including those patients with cirrhosis. Surgical resection, liver transplantation, local ablation are all curative. And when somebody is found to have early stage HEC, it's essential that we offer these therapies if and when possible. You're going to hear about this later in the talk. There are ongoing trials to take a look at combination therapies, neoadjuvant therapies, adjuvant therapies, looking at the introduction of immunotherapy in earlier stages of disease. Very exciting trials, although not standard at this time. So I think that there are multiple take-home points. But I think overall, it's important for us to do screening, and it's important for us to offer curative therapies when possible to patients with early-stage HCC. And with that, we're going to move on to treatment, or talking about our emerging therapies, the efficacy, safety, and treatment selection. And I'm going to pass it over to Dr. Yershun. Thanks so much. Um, I think I have the fun part here. Uh, which is talking about treatment of HCC. And if we had had the session just a couple of years ago, uh, this really would have been my only uh, slide in the whole treatment session because until recently, serafinib was the only approved therapy for advanced HCC. Um, obviously, the landscape has changed dramatically in the last couple of years. So we have a lot of other treatments to talk about, but um, serafinib is really the most established uh, treatment for HCC. And it's the therapy that every other trial is sort of compared to or follows. So this is the data for serafinib. Serafinib is a multi-tericin kinase inhibitor. It's a pill, and uh, it targets, among other things, VEGF uh, signaling. 
And what you can see is that there's a significant improvement in overall survival for patients who receive serafinib versus placebo. This is the results of really two different phase three trials, one done uh, in a more Western population and one done in Asia, showing a very consistent prolongation overall survival, uh, almost three months, and really consistent across different etiologies, so viral and non-viral associated um, HCC. This was approved in 2007 and remained the only approved standard of care until 2017. And we have another multi-tyrosine kinase inhibitor that is also approved for patients in the frontline setting, um, and that is lembatinib. Lembatinib is another multi-tyrosine kinase inhibitor. And you can see that it is non-inferior to serafinib with regard to overall survival, but does show some superiority over serafinib with some secondary endpoints, including response rate and progression-free survival as shown in the chart here. So this is another option for patients with frontline HCC. So serafinib and lembatinib remain options, although as we'll talk about, we have newer options uh, in the frontline setting as well. I want to talk about our newest frontline option for patients with HCC. And this treatment option has essentially replaced serafinib or lembatinib for patients who are eligible for it. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about what that means. And that is the combination of atezolizumab and bevacizumab. Atezolizumab being PDL1 targeted immunotherapy and bevacizumab being an antibody against VEGF. And the approval of this combination was based on the IMBRAVE 150 study that randomized patients to atezobev versus our older standard of care serafinib. Patients were randomized, open label trial, global trial, and continued these therapies uh, until uh, either progression or intolerance to them. Uh, and the co-primary endpoints of the study were overall survival and progression-free survival. And what you can see on the slide here is that patients who were randomized to atezobev had significantly improved overall survival. Um, the overall survival was improved to 19.2 months versus 13.4 months for patients randomized to serafinib about a six-month prolonging of overall survival. I'll also just quickly note that the survival of the patients who received serafinib in the study is 13.4 months, which is actually much better than you might have seen on that first slide when I showed you the numbers for serafinib. And this probably reflects that over time, we've had some second-line therapies, and some of those second-line therapies have improved survival even in patients who got our old standard of care serafinib. So the landscape is getting a bit brighter for serafinib. But this this IMBRAVE 150 study clearly established bevatezo as our default frontline therapy for patients with advanced HCC uh, when patients are eligible for it. Um, you can see that patients who got bevatezo not only had improvements in overall survival, but also had longer progression-free survival, as well as response rate. The response rate to bevatezo is about 30%. And normally in oncology, when drugs are more effective, they also tend to be more toxic, but that is not the case with bevatezo. As you can see, the patients who were randomized to Bevitezo not only had improvements in survival, but also felt better. So their quality of life was better than quality of life questionnaires. This is a summary of the side effects. You can see that serafinib is a multi-tyrosine kinase inhibitor, as I mentioned, causes significant diarrhea and foot syndrome and decreased appetite. These side effects were not as significant for the patients who got Bevitezo. In terms of the side effects that uh, patients with Bevitezo get, that patients with serafinib don't get, I think the things to know is that, first of all, tezolizumab is an immunotherapy, so patients can experience immune-related adverse events, something that we'll be talking about later in the session. The other side effect that I think is worth talking about in some detail is bleeding. So bevacizumab is associated with bleeding, 
And so patients who uh, enrolled in the I'm Brave 150 study had to undergo an EGD prior to starting Bevitezo, despite everybody getting an EGD uh, to look for varices. Uh, there was an increased signal for more bleeding for the patients who got the bevacizumab than the serafinib. And as a result, I would say this is the most common reason that I don't give patients bevitezo is that patients who are particularly at risk for bleeding um, either have uncontrolled varices or recent bleeding or are just at particular risk of bleeding should not get bevitezo. I want to just quickly acknowledge that there are many ongoing phase three trials for first-line HCC, all of them randomized against serafinib or lenvatinib. We actually have had two major press releases in the last couple of weeks. Um, one of them is that the Himalaya trial is positive for overall survival. That's the combination of dervalumab, which is another PDL1 immunotherapy, plus tremolimumab. This is a second uh, checkpoint inhibitor molecule against CTLA4. And this prolongs survival versus our standard, our old standard of care serafinib. And so we will have a second option likely in the first line treatment of HCC that also prolongs survival. Um, we were also informed that Cosmic is positive for progression-free survival over serafinib. That's the combination of cabozanib and atezolizumab. So a lot happening for patients with advanced HCC. I think serafinib really becoming a drug that is used much less because of the emergence of all these other options that improve survival over it. So I will continue on here. As I mentioned, serafinib was approved way back in 2007. Then for a period of 10 years, there were no other approved drugs for advanced HCC until we got to 2017 when we had all these emergence of so many different therapies that I have listed here on the right. Uh, we've talked about lenvatinib in first-line HCC. Uh, we've talked about bevatezo, which again has become the preferred option for patients uh, with advanced HCC. And now I want to talk a little bit about our second-line options. So we have three therapies that have been approved for second-line HCC following prior serafinib. Again, a lot of these therapies were developed at the same time, so we don't have any second-line data for what to do after our new standard of care uh, bevatezo. But all three of these therapies, regorafinib, kebazinib, and ramaserumab, have all shown prolongation of overall survival versus placebo in second-line HCC for patients who receive prior serafinib. Regorafinib and kebazinib are both multi-tyrosine kinase inhibitors so they work similarly to serafinib and lenvatinib, inhibiting VEGF signaling as well as other uh, signaling molecules. Ramaserumab is more similar to bevacizumab in that it's an antibody, in this case against um, VEGFR2. I want to just take a moment and say that ramaserumab has a very specific indication for HCC. It's approved for patients in second-line HCC who have an AFP of greater than 400. And that's because in phase three trials, ramaserumab did not appear to provide any benefit to patients who had an AFP of less than 400. So please keep this in mind. This ramaserumab is specifically approved for patients with an AFP of greater than 400 in second line HCC after prior serapnid. And then we've talked a little bit about immunotherapy in first line HCC. I want to just acknowledge pembrolizumab is a PD-1 antibody that's approved in second line HCC after prior serapnid. And this was given accelerated approval. And unfortunately, the confirmatory study in the U.S. missed its primary outcome of progression-free survival and overall survival primary endpoint, but it's still on the market. And there was a second confirmatory study in Asia that was positive, which is why it's likely to remain on the market. Uh, so for patients who don't get immunotherapy 
in the front line who don't get bevatezo or patients who are now coming off of TPI therapy who need a second line option. Um, immunotherapy remains an option in second line uh, with pembrolizumab. So just to talk a little bit, we now have three first line options and five second line options uh, for patients with HCC. You might say, you know, how do we choose which patient gets what therapy? I wish I had better news to report on this front, but the truth is that we really don't know. There are many exploratory biomarkers that are being developed to try to help us choose which patients should get what therapy. But so far, there's really nothing here that I think is ready for clinical practice. Standard biomarkers like PDL1 expression or tumor mutation burden really have not shown great predictive value for selection of immunotherapy and HCC. So this is an area where I think we need a lot more progress. This is a broad overview of all of our treatments for HCC. Hitting on the first line here, the combination of atezolizumab and bevacizumab is, again, the only therapy to improve survival in first line over our old standard of care serafinib. So bevatezo should be the default standard of care in first line HCC for patients who are eligible for it. Serafinib and lenvatinib are multi-tyrosine kinase inhibitors, also approved in first line HCC for patients who are ineligible for bevatezo including patients who are not candidates for immunotherapy because of severe active autoimmune disease. For patients who get atezobev in first line, in terms of second line, I would say the most commonly used second line option would be a multi-tyrosine kinase inhibitor, either a first line TKI like serafinib or lenvatinib, or a second line TKI like cabozantinib or regorafinib. For patients who get something like serafinib, or lenvatinib in front line, really any of these options listed here would be very reasonable second line options. Just remember ramaciramab is specific for patients with an AFP of over 400. One therapy we haven't talked a lot about is the combination of nivolumab and ipilimumab. This is the combination of two different checkpoint inhibitors. This is approved on accelerated approval from the FDA, so we're still awaiting confirmatory phase three trial. That trial is ongoing. But this has a very impressive response rate of 33%, actually, um, which is much higher than we've seen with nivolumab or pembrolizumab by itself. So this is another option for select patients, although the response rate is higher, but also the toxicity is higher, probably because of the combination. The major takeaways here are, number one, that you know whenever possible, patients should be seen in a multidisciplinary setting. And that's in part because, number one, Patients with HCC, 90% of them have underlying cirrhosis, and so it's very helpful to work closely with a hepatologist to co-manage these patients. The other takeaway is that really this is a very exciting time to be treating HCC. We've gone from one therapy to nine therapy options in just a couple of years. I would say atezolizumab and bevacizumab right now is the preferred first-line therapy when there are no contraindications to it um, because of the improvement in overall survival versus serafinib. And there are many second-line options, including TKIs and immunotherapy for patients in the second-line setting. So again, sequencing is critically important, and it's something that is evolving and uh, and should really be personalized on a variety of different uh, uh, metrics. So uh, with that, I think I'm turning it over to Amit, who's going to go through some of the evolving treatment strategies. Thanks, Mark. Um, you know, as you said, um, really exciting time in terms of systemic therapies and, you know, the explosion of potential therapeutic options, and particularly given the fact that 
these aren't just options that continue to do the same thing. I mean, the notable improvement in responses and overall survival, um, it really is an exciting time um, and rewarding time to be involved in, in the clinical care of, of HCC. So, you know, Mark has nicely walked us through the evolving um, landscape from a systemic therapy standpoint. And as one can imagine, the exciting responses that we've seen in the systemic therapy space have prompted us to ask if we can now extrapolate some of these agents into earlier stages of disease and further improve outcomes for patients even with earlier stages of disease. As I mentioned in the first part of this presentation, we know that if somebody is found early, we have curative therapies available, surgical resection being one of them. The problem is that you know these patients retain their underlying liver disease and their underlying cirrhosis, and so they're at high risk of post-op recurrence. And so when you take a look at this, overall, 50 to 70% of patients will have recurrence within five years after surgical resection. Um, really highlighting the need for neoadjuvant or adjuvant therapy that can reduce the risk of recurrence and improve recurrence-free survival. Now, as Mark mentioned, we started in a TKI-based world, starting most notably with serafinib. And when serafinib um, was shown to be a benefit in the SHARP trial, there were subsequent trials taking a look at serafinib in earlier stages of disease. Here you can see data from the STORM trial. It's a phase three randomized control trial looking at adjuvant serafinib versus placebo after patients who underwent surgical resection or local ablation and were deemed to be high risk of having recurrence. Unfortunately, despite some enthusiasm going into the trial, as you can see by the nearly overlapping curves, serafinib failed to improve recurrence-free survival and at this time, there are no proven adjuvant or neoadjuvant therapies in combination with surgical resection or local ablation. Now, this is completely being reassessed with the exciting responses we've seen with immune checkpoint inhibitors, particularly with combination immune checkpoint inhibitors. And so here you can see several of the trials that are ongoing, including four phase three studies that are ongoing, taking a look at immune checkpoint inhibitors, either in an adjuvant or neoadjuvant fashion after surgical resection or local ablation. Once again, we don't have any data at this time outside of you know, small cohort studies, but I do think that once again, there's a lot of excitement around this and we will see data coming out over the next several years. I wouldn't be surprised if we see improvements with some of these agents in one of these manners. Similarly, we talked about patients with intermediate stage disease, so liver localized, but beyond an early stage. These patients are currently treated with local therapies, whether chemoembolization or radioembolization. So these are typically you know, beads that are injected directly into the liver via branches of the hepatic artery that deliver local chemotherapy or local radiation therapy directly to the HCC. And these therapies have been shown to improve progression-free survival as well as overall survival. Here you can see a systematic review and meta-analysis that was published five years ago, looking at those data, showing that TACE improves overall survival, but you get a median survival somewhere between two to three years. So although this improves outcomes, we clearly would like to do better. And much like the story of adjuvant neoadjuvant therapy, there have been several trials that have looked at TKI therapy, most notably serafinib, in combination with chemoembolization. 
Unfortunately, once again, these studies have largely been negative. Serafinib fails to improve outcomes when combined with chemoembolization compared to chemoembolization alone. And so this is true for progression-free survival as well as overall survival based on the data that are available. Currently, the recommendation is not to do combination therapies using available agents, although once again, being reassessed with multiple phase three studies, taking a look at the combination of immune checkpoint inhibitors in combination with local therapies, whether in combination with TACE or in combination with radioembolization, once again, not standard, but we will see exciting data present itself over the next couple of years. And many of us, including myself, have hope that these will also be positive. Thank you for listening to the Practicing Clinicians Exchange podcast. To claim your credit, please visit pce.is forward slash GIGU. And while you're there, don't forget to check out our website for more complimentary oncology CE CME activities.